High in the Bavarian Alps of Germany is the Kielstein House, or the Eagle's Nest, an amazing chalet-style structure that was given to Adolf Hitler on his 50th birthday. And though the Kielstein House is, a, is associated, no doubt, with a reprehensible regime, terrible things, it does transcend its association as a magnificent location. It was captured by the 101st Airborne in May of 1945, and it was used as a, an Allied command post until 1960. Now, Hitler rarely visited this really scenic place. He, he went maybe 10 times. And they said most of the time he would spend less than 30 minutes there. Um, it was meant to host the foreign dignitaries that were visiting, and, and uh, he would meet them there as a day retreat center. It, it is perched over 6,000 feet up on the Kielstein Mountain, uh, accessed by a four-mile road, and concluded with an elevator ride to the top. Uh, the elevator shaft is bore through the mountain 470 feet to the top with this ornate and lavish um, elevator car boasting Venetian mirrors and polished brass and even green leather. Some of you might have a green leather couch, I don't know. Uh, you can still ride it today. It's, it's interesting. You could go over there and, and ride it up. From the eagle's nest is a breathtaking view. They have pictures online that I was looking at, just amazed at the beauty of this place. Uh, expansive mountain ranges and just a short walk from this ostentatious, lavish elevator stands a Gipfelkreuz, a summit cross. Imagine it. High atop... A Bavarian mountain, a short distance from the retreat center, a short distance from the magnificent elevator, is a cross. In order to reach the pinnacle of God's breathtaking and beautiful peace and solace and retreat, you must ascend. We must ascend on the elevator, on the ladder of Jesus Christ. He is the lavish incarnation of God's grace that excel, uh, uh, escalates us to the apex of peace and comfort in God. Jesus is the transport of heaven. Augustine wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Christ is our rest. But we struggle, right, with restlessness. There's distance. There's uncomfort here until we are finally and fully united with Christ in the end. Are you tired, yearning for rest? Well, there is only one way up. There's only one way there, and it is lavish, it is extravagant, and leads to breathtaking summits. It begins with the pursuit. Jesus finds us and leads us. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Jesus found Philip in Galilee. Verse 44 says Philip was from Bethsaida, which means house of fishing. I probably would have liked the place. The same hometown that Andrew and Peter were from. So perhaps these guys uh, knew each other growing up. Who knows? 
Bethsaida was northeast of the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan River enters. Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. And Philip did. And Philip was there when Jesus told him and and the other 11 disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Philip had been found by Christ. Jesus came to him. Jesus hunts. Did you know Jesus hunts? Not with rifle, not with bow, not to kill animals, but to find people. In the words of the great Puritan preacher Matthew Henry, Christ sought us and found us before we made any inquiries after him. A few years ago, I was discerning and thinking through becoming a chaplain in the United States Air Force. And so I went in in Pittsburgh, I went in to talk to the recruiter. Well, with Jesus, it's different than that. The recruiter comes to us chooses us, transforms us by his grace into soldiers of the cross. The initiative is his. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus seeks, Jesus finds, and Jesus commissions. Remember the old time hymn. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Two weeks ago, I asked the question, have you found what you're looking for? And I hope that the answer in your heart is, yes, I have found what I'm looking for. But this week, Jesus finds what he's looking for. He searches sinners out. He finds them and he changes them. Watch how all of this impacted Philip. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I think there was excitement in his voice. Verse 43 says, Jesus found Philip. And verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael. Philip was excited about an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, an encounter with the Messiah. And he went and he found his friend, Nathanael. God grows his church like that. God finds people through other people. And I think that Philip got a little confused, maybe in the joy of the moment, I don't know, because he says, we have found him. Oh, come on. No, you didn't. He found you, right? Let's be more accurate. Watch your words, right? We have found him. I think he was excited. Don't miss the rest of verse 45. Jesus is found in the Old Testament. We have to hear this point. I think this is profound. Jesus is found in the Old Testament. What Philip told Nathanael in verse 45 was right out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really a compilation of books that ultimately point to Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. Did you know that? The Old Testament, the purpose of it was Jesus Christ. Jesus said on one occasion, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalm 90, all of which are pointing directly to Jesus Christ. Now, Philip identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Both important descriptions identifying the one, the Messiah. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, as the scripture prophesied, but the scriptures also prophesied that, he would, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so that might have confused some people. 
how could this, how could that work? Because he's supposed to, I don't get this. But Jesus lived with his mother and his adoptive father, Joseph, in the Middle East. Did you ever think about Jesus being adopted? Jesus, or uh, Joseph, rather, wasn't his biological father. Yet Joseph loved and cared for Jesus as a son. And, and Jesus grew up being known as the carpenter's son. Manual labor, good, hard manual labor. And he, and he was identified with this very common man. Only later did his divine nature become clear to many. Now you have to understand that hardly any modern scholars disagree or debate the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. It's really hard to disprove. The, the, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus existed. Yet there is spirited debate over his substance. Who do you say that he is? That's where the debate rages. Not whether Jesus of Nazareth existed. Now, if you look all over the Old Testament, you will not find the name Jesus Christ. But he is there. All of God's word is equally inspired, inerrant, infallible, and important, and culminates in Christ the Messiah. Now, if you're anything like me, I find at times the Old, the Old Testament's tough to study. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, you read it, and it's like, I don't know what that means. Um, and it can be tough. What I think really helps... Uh, in our lives is the realization that it ultimately is being written about Jesus Christ. It all serves the purpose of unmasking the great glory and beauty of the redemptive, a redemptive plan of God, and it sets the stage for Christ. He is in Leviticus. He is in the Psalms. He is in Proverbs. He is in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and all throughout the Old Testament. And Philip realizes this in verse 45. That's what he's commenting on. But something serious got in the way for Nathanael, a roadblock. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Our prejudices get in the way of following Jesus. Nathanael, he said it like he saw it. I can appreciate guys like that. I, I think at times I'm like that. It's like, boom, and then it's out. And you're like, can't get it back. Already said it. I, I say it like I see it. This, that's how Nathaniel was. And he didn't like Nazareth. Nazareth was really a small town. It was probably around 2,000 people in population, probably about half the size of what Mannheim is. Jerusalem at the time was in the tens of thousands. Archaeologists have uncovered relics in this agricultural uh, town, including oil presses and and wine and oil cellars. Over the entrance into the town hung a sign that said, Welcome to Hickville. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It didn't say that. But really, I mean, that's the kind of town that it was. That's the kind of place that it was. And Nathaniel didn't like it. It rubbed him the wrong way. Now, some people were confused that the Messiah came from Nazareth. Uh, instead of Bethlehem, in John 7, 41, you, you see some of this tension. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the, vi the village where David was? But I don't think that was Nathaniel's primary issue with Nazareth. Or he would have said something like, can the Messiah come out of Nazareth? 
But that's not what he said. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I hate it. You know, that's kind of where he's coming from. I don't think anything good comes from that place. He asks a question that makes a statement. He just didn't like Nazareth. And his prejudice got in the way of faith. Prejudice is precarious and prevents faith. Prejudice is precarious and prevents faith. George Aiken was an American farmer. He was governor of Vermont and and, uh, a member of the Republican Party of the early 20th century. He said this, If we were to wake up some morning and find that everyone was the same race, creed, and color, we would find some other causes for prejudice by noon. And I think he's right. We are a peculiar prejudiced people. Strong preferences, strong partialities, strong biases, many of which are not biblical. They're not. Biases are not the same as biblical judgments, but we equate them sometimes. We should evaluate everything through the lens of Scripture, of the Bible, and make judgments according to what it says in the Word. But biases and prejudices are not based upon Scripture. They're based upon self-centered preferences. Isn't it true that we often form prejudices against things different from us? Things that threaten and bear down on our traditions? We allow our self-centered preferences to lead us instead of God leading us. Pride fuels prejudice. We set the standard, right? We're the ones that decide. The problem is we elevate our personal preferences above God's principles. We become tight-fisted. Uh, unbending with our preferences, and then we become most flexible, most moderate on clear biblical principles. When God desires it the other way around, loosen up on your preferences, but when it comes to biblical doctrine, defendable things from the scripture, we stand firm, unwavering, unmoving, unbending, because God said it, not us. Nathaniel allowed his personal preference and prejudice to inform his view of Jesus rather than the truth. Now, how did Philip interact with Nathaniel's prejudice? What did he tell him? He said, come and see. Come and see. Give Jesus a fair chance. Look at him. Watch him. Listen to him. Immerse yourself in him and allow Jesus to inform your conclusions, not your own prejudices. Psalm 66, verse 5 says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And that is what Philip is calling Nathaniel to do. Come and see God. Now, I really believe that God has tremendous things to reveal to you and to show you. I do. I really believe that. But you may not be seeing them in your life because of the sin of your own biases. You may ask, can anything good come out of this terrible situation in my life? Anything redeeming. God, can you do anything from this mess? And I think that's a a bias against God's sovereignty. Where he says, 
I will bring these things around. Are you going to trust me? And the cry of our heart is, not really. Not really. Nothing is going right, God. Nothing seems to be how I want it to be. Can you bring something good out of this? Isn't the root of that struggle a form of prejudice against God? What breaks the cycle? You have to leave your prejudices behind. You've got to get by them. Put them behind you and come and see Jesus. Rest at his feet. Learn from him. Submit to his leadership. You see, we might as well just be open and honest and vulnerable about our prejudices because guess what? Jesus knows that they're there. You're not hiding anything. You're not fooling him. He knows your prejudices. Jesus knows us inside and out. Inside and out. What happens next to Nathaniel changed him forever. He encounters the divinity of Jesus. This is such an awesome moment, and you can't miss what's happening here. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, you've got to understand the Old Testament to understand that. Do you remember how deceitful Jacob was? Remember the story of Jacob? If not, take a look in your Bible sometime and research Jacob. Jacob lied to his dad Isaac in order to steal the blessing meant for his brother Esau. And it worked. His plan worked. He got the blessing. And guess what God did? God graciously blessed him the rest of his life. Later, after Jacob wrestled with God, God gave him a new name. And that name was Israel, which became synonymous with God's people. In verse 47, Jesus alludes to Jacob by mentioning both this deceit and this Israelite connection. And verse 51 mentions Jacob's dream, which we'll see a little bit later. Nathanael was an Israelite, but unlike Jacob or Israel, there was no deceit in him. Nathanael wasn't sinless at that point. That wasn't where Jesus was going, uh, but Jesus recognized this guy says it like he sees it. He's honest, unhindered. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the kind of guy he was, and Jesus knew it. And this catches him off guard. How do you know me? How do you know me? I've never met you before. How do you know this stuff about me? Jesus told him, Before Philip called you, you know, when you were under the tree, fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. Historically, fig trees were a great place to withdraw, to rest, maybe get some shade so that you could ponder and commune with God there, to worship God. And that's probably what Nathaniel was doing. So Jesus wasn't there physically when Philip found Nathaniel. It wasn't like he was looking through binoculars, checking out the whole scene. But he still saw him. You see, Jesus knew him before he ever met him. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew his life. John 2.25 says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And David foreshadowed all of this and wrote something that I just was like, oh, my parallel. Check this out. Psalm 139, 1 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Jesus knew about the tree. He knew about Nathanael's frankness as a man. He knew about him before they ever met. Jesus, all that he was doing was flexing the muscles of his divinity. He's just showing them who he is. They had never met, yet Jesus had details, and Nathanael responded in amazement, Rabbi, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nothing can explain Christ's knowledge except divine power and leadership. Jesus saw everything. John Calvin said, We ought also to gather from this passage a useful doctrine that when we are not thinking of Christ, we are observed by him. And it is necessary that it, be, that it should be so, that he may bring us back when we have wandered from the right path. You know, if one of my kids gets lost, this is not exciting for me or Christina. And at that moment, when I go out and search for them, and grab them. I want to know where they are. Now, I'm not like Jesus in that respect, but I want to know where they are. I'm, I'm trying to do the check-ins, you know, where are they? They swarm around your feet, and all of a sudden, they're gone. And, and I want to know where they are to grab them and to pull them back to prevent them from making a mistake. Jesus knows everything about you. Everything. Everything. He's not at a loss for ways to help you, to be there, to encourage you, to lead you along. He's not at a loss. He knows where he's going. He knows where you need to go, and he is ready to help you get there. There are really only two ways to respond to his comprehensive knowledge of you, either discomfort or comfort. It's like when you are motoring down the road 100 miles an hour and you pass a cop car. What's going on in your heart right there? (laughs) You know, you're caught. Compared with, it's late at night, you're walking down an alley, and three men surround you, and they're big. And a cop shows up. Same cop, different response. One is discomfort, one is comfort. If Jesus knows you, it means he also knows your sin, and shame, and guilt, Can't hide it, can't run. It's there. And that's uncomfortable to be known that well by someone. You cannot hide anything from him. And a lot of people don't like to hear or talk about their sin because they know it's true. And the truth hurts. And so they avoid Jesus. They avoid church. They avoid friends. They avoid accountability because they feel guilty. And they are guilty. But what they fail to recognize is that the Jesus they walk away from is the only real solution to their issues. He's the only one that can provide an answer that actually gets you through the issues, that provides what you need. We are all guilty, 
But the gospel is not doom and gloom. It doesn't rest on you're guilty. Now go home and wallow in that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is life and liberation. Jesus knew Nathanael inside and out, and Nathanael followed him because he did. In verse 49, Nathanael makes a statement for the record books. I mean, this is a big one. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We named our son Peter Nathaniel. Two tremendous men that made two fantastic, memorable statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was Peter. And Nathaniel, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. My, how Nathaniel was changed by Christ. Jesus does that. He changes us. He changes people. Jesus changes us. All of a sudden, Nathaniel's prejudice against Nazareth was proved wrong, and it no longer mattered. What happened? He encountered God. Jesus proved himself worthy. Now, why is Nathaniel's choice of words significant in verse 49? Just take a look at it. Because Jesus is Psalm 2. Jesus is Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Nathaniel was right. Jesus is that son. Jesus is that king. A personal challenge to you this week Uh, in your devotions, or if you don't have devotions, start this week, open your Bible to Ezekiel 37 this week, and study Ezekiel 37, particularly the last half of it, and look for Jesus. Just ask God before you read it, would you just show me Jesus in this passage? Then read it and look for him. You'll be amazed. See what happens in you. A genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. Martin Luther King Jr. said that. With Nathaniel and Philip, Jesus is molding consensus about his kingship, and he hasn't ever stopped. He's still building consensus. He he is the greatest leader of history, molding consensus by grace. He molded Nathaniel. He molded you. He molded me. Never forget, one day there will be 100% consensus. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's consensus, and he builds it with the powerful uh, nature that he has. Natures, I should say, human 
and divine. When Philip told Nathanael to come and see, that's exactly what happened. Nathanael came and Nathanael saw the manifested glory and divinity of Jesus. Jesus proved himself. No other man can change us like this man. If you um, have ever had doubt about Christ's ability to change you and help you and provide for you, you need to come and see. You need to come and see. He knows you better than you know yourself. Chapter 1 has a remarkable end with Jesus as the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus is the ladder to heaven. If you've ever cleaned out uh, roof gutters, or if your kid shot a stomp rocket up on you know, the roof or threw a ball up there or a frisbee, and you're like, all right, I'll get it there. You know the only way up is by the ladder. Sometimes at very uh, wonderful heights. Um, going up is all about the connection between where you are and where you need to be. Now, I assume that you want to go to heaven, and that, that's important to you. Mark Twain said, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. All right? He, he, he was witty. He flat out was witty. No doubt. Intelligent man. But in that little quip is a common thought that people actually embrace. The fun and interesting people, the people who really knew how to live life, are in hell. Why not avoid the stiffs in heaven, right? Just go to hell where the party is. That is just so sad. Because it's not true. It's just flat out not true. And it assumes that there's a friendship that outperforms the friendship of Christ. Heaven is more than climate. It is company with God in the presence of eternal and unparalleled joy and pleasures in God. Heaven is nothing short of an unending, breathtaking relationship with God. A relationship that transcends all the other ones. Wherever Jesus is, that is where I want to be. Because if he is not there, I will know for eternity that there's a better place. And I don't want that tension. I have that tension now. And so do you. You do not want to be where you know something greater exists. That's why you need Jesus now. That's why you need Jesus then. Everyone in hell will be there Because they radically underestimated the limitless joy they could have had in Christ. They refused to ascend. If heaven is important to you, if eternal joy is essential for you, if unending celestial paradise is desirable for you at any level, then you must hear Jesus In verse 50, Jesus answers Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, what Jesus knew about Nathanael was absolutely incredible. What greater things possibly could Nathanael see? Jesus said to Nathanael in verse 51, take a look. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, why is that impressive? Let's dig into that a little bit. First, an odd question for you. Why do people say amen at the end of prayers? You ever thought about that? Just something we toss on at the end? It has meaning. It has meaning. Amen is a Greek, a strong Greek affirmation of assent and agreement. Amen means let it be so, or amen means mm-hmm, that's right. That's what it means. 
And we say that because we agree with the prayers. If you hear someone praying some whacked out prayer, don't say amen. I'm keeping my amen because that wasn't true. And Jesus says, amen, amen. He says it twice. Truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen up. He's saying, I have something profound. He's adding effect. Well, what does he say? You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Here's the powerful point I mentioned earlier. Here's the connection with Israel and Jacob, verse 47. Here's where Jesus was leading Nathanael. He was explaining the final reality of Genesis 28, where Jacob is on his way to Laban. He's on his way to find him a wife. And he's excited about that. And the sun had set and he grew tired and so he grabs a rock and he puts his head under the rock, great pillow, and uh, he goes to sleep. Here it is. And Jacob dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. And to your offspring. The ladder of Jacob's dream was the connection between heaven and earth, the connection between God and man. When Jacob woke up from the dream, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was scared about that. And so he says, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The ladder connected heaven and earth. The latter is the gate of, he- of heaven. William Hendrickson calls it the bond of union between God and man. So what does that mean? Verse 51 tells us the latter is the son of man. The connection between heaven and earth, God and man, is the son of man. And to know who the son of man is, we have to understand Daniel seven thirteen, where Daniel had a dream. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is the king of the kingdom that cannot be destroyed? Who has servants from all peoples, nations, and languages? Who was given all dominion and glory? His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. That was probably his, his uh, favorite title for himself. After Jesus healed the blind man, who eventually was very seriously kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus went back to him and in John nine thirty five and 37 said this directly to the man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus Christ is the son of man, and therefore the latter connecting God and man. Jesus is the only mediator or go-between with God and man. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The only hope that we have to ascend into heaven to God is the latter 
Jesus Christ is the only way up. There is no back stairway. There is no hidden elevator. One Lord, one ladder, one way. The ladder of Jacob's dream was the God-man Jesus Christ. He's all over the Old Testament. Bringing heaven to earth and by grace taking us to heaven. There is a massive divide between us and heaven. It's not like Pennsylvania to California. Long distance, but if you just had enough time, you can get there by, by driving. It's not like that. It's like the Grand Canyon to the long jumper. All right, go ahead and try to, try to jump this. You know, you just fall short. That is our story. Heaven is an impossible height. The only way to ascend there is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the power of God's grace escalates our souls to reunion with God. I got to end, but as I do, the best possible news that you and I could hear this morning, the best possible thing that could hit our ears is that the chasm between heaven and earth has been spanned by a majestic ladder. The mountain of heaven has one elevator shaft with one ornate and beautiful elevator, and the only way to ascend to the peak of eternal joy is through Jesus Christ. Remember the Gipfelkreuz, the summit cross. For it is through the cross of Jesus Christ that we ascend to the beautiful, breathtaking summit retreat of God himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we are appealing to you, to your grandeur and your greatness to your son, the ornate and splendid elevator of heaven, the only one that can ascend us with him to you. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit drives this home to Jerusalem. I pray we can't get it out of our minds. I pray that we understand what Jesus Christ has done and that that fuels us to greater joy in this life, greater peace in this life, and the next. God, I want Jerusalem to be filled with Christians, people who know Jesus Christ. And there are people outside of these walls who don't know Jesus Christ, and I pray that you bring them here. I pray that Jerusalem can be a church of people who go out to say, there's a ladder, there's an elevator, you can get to heaven, we want you with us. And that we would be an evangelizing church, letting people know that the chasm between heaven and earth, the chasm between God and man, has been bridged by Jesus. And I pray that through our lives and through our words, we are calling people to treasure Christ. Help us to be faithful, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.